Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Corngut. I am a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Available now from Dread, Val. Finn, a wanted criminal, hides out with an escort named Val, a demon. Val offers to make his problems disappear if he follows her rules. She has been expecting him all along, and it won't be easy to escape Val's dungeon. Val is out now everywhere you buy or rent movies, and on Blu-ray November 2nd. Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Halloween is Cancelled, our mini-series within Development Hell, documenting five unmade, fairly outrageous Halloween sequels. Today, we are tackling Halloween 6, a.k.a. Halloween 666, The Origin, a.k.a. Quentin Tarantino's Halloween 6, question mark. Uh, we have a very, very special returning guest today. We have Jinx with us again. Uh, Jinx is a writer over at Bloody Disgusting. He is a podcaster. Jason, aka Jinx, can you reintroduce yourself to the Development Hell audience? Even though I'm sure you don't need to, everyone remembers you, but I'd like a recap. One, thank you very much for having me back. Two, um, yeah, I uh, I write for Bloody Disgusting. I have a handful of uh, columns there, including Phantom Limbs, which, uh, you know, delves into unmade movies and whatnot. It's kind of my baby. Uh, that's, that's the, my, you know, my favorite column out of all the ones that I write. And uh, as you noted, I am a podcaster. I have a podcast called Scream Addicts, which is currently kind of on the last leg of its special project called Hammer Pub, wherein uh, co-hosts Paul Farrell and Allie Chapel and I, we, uh, you know, we have a few drinks and we provide running commentaries for Hammer Horror Films. And uh, other than that, I am, uh, I'm just excited to be back. We are so excited that you're back. Honestly, we kind of wish we could have you on every episode. You are truly the development hell aficionado, kind of like celeb of the internet. Yeah, we're big fans of everything you do. We try to keep up to date with Phantom Limbs, stealing all sorts of information for this episode. Um, And I do kind of feel like we're kind of like this yin and yang of the unmade horror movie universe. And I think that's really beautiful. I approached you to be in this Halloween is Cancelled miniseries. 
And I asked you which um, unmade Halloween project would you want to talk about? And right away you said Halloween 6. So I'm wondering why Halloween 6? Why unmade Halloween 6? What draws you to this super bizarre topic? So if I recall correctly, you offered me uh, a couple of options and Mm -hmm. I, I looked them over and I was like, Okay, these would these would be good, but can we uh, can we please do Halloween Six instead? I yeah, Halloween Six is an important movie for me in uh, in that it's the film that kind of really opened my eyes to the idea of alternate cuts and unmade films. You know, if we can cast all the way back to the mid nineties, long before you know the the you know back when the internet was in its infancy, you know there was no social media aside from hopping on to like message boards on horror websites and whatnot if you wanted to get your fix and uh other than that, you just had the news that you would read in Fangoria if you were a horror fan as to what exactly was happening in the genre at the time and being a relatively new fan my my first ever issue the uh when I started collecting Fangoria in earnest, it was number one fifty one and there was this little sidebar that talked about this this cut of Halloween 6 that was making the rounds called the producer's cut that was kind of, you know, making its way around conventions on bootleg VHSs and whatnot that basically held a completely different version of the film. And this uh, sidebar detailed what all those differences were. And to like 14-year-old me, it was mind-blowing that there was a completely different version of the film out there. You know, keep in mind, I I grew up on VHS. DVD was still in the future at this point. The notion of being able to see deleted scenes and alternate endings and alternate cuts of movies and whatnot, it was just, you know, something I had no frame of reference for. So that was sort of the movie that kind of opened my eyes to that. And then on top of that, you know, reading uh, more about Halloween 6, I found out that you know, there were going to be different versions of it. You know, there was the Phil Rosenberg script. There was uh, potentially going to be a Tarantino Halloween 6. And again, that's, I think that's really where the bug bit me initially, uh, you know, when it comes to movies that never were, you know. Uh, That's sort of what set my mind reeling the first time. And uh, as a result, you know, Halloween 6 has always been kind of a, uh, you know, I'm kind of a softy for it. I, I will admit I didn't really care for the movie when I first caught it as a teen, but eventually I came around on it. And I, I will admit the movie that we have now, both theatrical and, uh, you know, producers cut, I kind of love them both. Oh, I, I love them both too. Yeah, you couldn't have picked a, a more appropriate topic for this podcast and uh, for a Halloween movie in, in general. It is, okay, Halloween 6, the unmade versions, and the actual released version are the most chaotic installment of all the Halloweens by (laughs) far. And I would say probably the most troubled of all the Halloween production histories by far, which makes it just like a chef's kiss topic for this podcast. I'm going to give a little bit of information on the Halloween 6 we all love and know, before we get into talking a little bit more about why we love or or don't love that sequel. So Halloween 6, directed by Joe Chappelle and written by Daniel Farrens, was released on September 29th, 1995. It was made for a $5 million budget and raked in about $15 million, which is not bad. General feelings about this strange little movie you kind of were were hinting to it but what's your overall relationship with halloween six well again you know i (laughs) this is kind of funny this is going to be embarrassing but what the hell we're uh we're here to tell the truth 
I grew up, uh, the first Halloween that I ever saw was Halloween 5 uh, on, it wasn't even VHS, it was like pay-per-view, and uh, I watched it over and over again, and admittedly, I, I think every boy of a certain age who, who especially burgeoning horror fans, if they got <laughs> Halloween 5, like, you know, around 9 or 10, we had a crush on Daniel Harris. Like, that's just, you know. Of course. And, um, you know, I, I love that movie. I backtracked and watched Halloween 4, and uh, I just... I loved that story, you know, and I loved the Jamie Lloyd story and mm-hmm. I loved the mystery of the man in black. And so I always wanted to know who in the hell the man in black was, but unfortunately that answer wouldn't come for a very long time. And, uh, by the time that Halloween six came out, I backtracked and watched, you know, one, two, three, which I loved at the time all the way back then, you know, I'll be hipstery about it. I was first, damn it. You I like right. that movie. And, um, you know, I, I could not wait to see six when it turned out that it was finally coming out. And, uh, I remember I went opening weekend. It was a sleepy Sunday. I caught a matinee and, um, here's this character that I loved that I was genuinely invested in as a fan being played by a different actor. Uh, not knocking JC Brandy. I think she actually does a very good job in the opening of the film, but you know, it's a different actor. And she is unceremoniously killed in the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, which is a recurring thing mm-hmm. in the Halloween franchise. You know, Laurie, how many times has she been offed unceremoniously? Um, <laughs> you, you have our lead, Rachel, from Halloween 4, just, you know, offed in the first 15 that minutes. Was of Halloween that was rude. That was scissors. That was not okay. Yeah, and now we have... You know, we have little Jamie Lloyd, grown up, pregnant, and I don't even want to think about that, and then she is shoved onto like this farm implement, whatever the hell it is, and she is torn up like any old victim in a Friday the 13th movie, and I gotta say... It's horrible. Yeah, and plus, you know, it, it probably didn't do the movie any favors with me that... You know, seeing on like horror movie message boards and Fangoria letters pages, people bashing the living hell out of the movie. And so I'll admit, I was I was kind of a snob about number six for a while. I didn't care for it. And admittedly, I kid you not, it depressed me. A film, a fictional character's death depressed me for a <laughs> couple of days. I remember, God bless her, Ms. Ruggiero, uh, my, my, what was it? She would have been my third period Spanish teacher. Uh, she asked me, of course, we all had Spanish names at the time. And I just remember staring, you know, off into the distance in one class, probably a few days. It was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday after I got Very Laurie Strode of you. Yeah. And she, uh, she's just like, Javier, que lastima. You know, and just asking, like, what, what's wrong? And I was just like, oh, um, uh, a character that I really liked in a series of movies died. And she just kind of stared at me and realized that she would never ask me what the problem was ever again. <laughs> no, she regretted it. <laughs> but, but you know, like I, I, I eventually kind of softened on it. I remember buying, um, oh, what was it? A Brother Kane's album that had the song and fools shine on, mm-hmm. on it. And I listened to that over and over, uh, right before Halloween H2O came out, I finally found this website called video junkie, which was amazing. They had everything back in the day before DVDs. If you could imagine a time when you couldn't easily get a hold of Argento or Fulci films or various Japanese horror flicks or really anything, video junkie had your back. They would actually have these VHS pulls from Japanese laser discs with annoying subtitles and whatnot. And even though I was, you know, I didn't have a whole hell of a lot of money at the time. I was just a teenager, but I could hop onto that website and read these synopses of all of these 
crazy sounding movies that were unlike Mm -hmm. anything I was getting out of American cinema. And so for that reason alone, Video Junkie was the best. But I did eventually buy a VHS copy of the Stendhal Syndrome, uh, the Argento film, before it was ever available in the U.S. because I thought Fangoria made it sound amazing. And I do love that movie. And I bought the producer's cut of Halloween 6. It arrived the day that Halloween H2O hit theaters. And it came in the mail. I cracked it open and I was able to do the best double feature ever by watching the producer's cut of six in this smeary, terrible, like fourth generation VHS copy of the movie. And it was, it was the most exciting thing ever. And then immediately I go from that to watching H2O, you know, on a 40 foot screen in widescreen, like 35 millimeter. And, um, no, eventually I came around on six and I got to the point where, you know, I didn't even feel guilty about it anymore. It was no longer a guilty pleasure. I was like, you know what? I'm I'm going to take up for this movie. I think it's fantastic. I love what it does with the mythology. I love that it takes big swings. I love that, you know, it, it's just bold at a point in the series where it should probably be lazy and just rehash all that's come before. And it mm-hmm. doesn't do that, you know? And uh yeah, so I so I dig it. No matter I, I know that a lot of people will sort of excuse their fandom of the movie by saying, Well, you know, the producer's cut, sure, you know, which I love the producer's cut and I do think it is superior, but you know what? I'll go ahead and say it. I think the theatrical cut is a lot of fun too. I prefer the theatrical cut, if I'm gonna be honest with you. Oh, I well, saw okay. the producer's cut in theaters, yeah, you know, like I'm gonna say four or five years ago. I don't think I liked it as much, if I'm going to be fully honest with you. Yeah, I'm going to age myself a little bit here. So I was very young when I saw Halloween 6 for the first time. Uh, and it was the first Halloween movie I'd ever seen. I'd rented it with my dad. I was just getting into horror. And I was just allowed to be getting into horror. And we finally, I don't know why it took us so long to get to the Halloween franchise, but we like rented the most recent, I'm assuming, Halloween movie. And it happened to be that one. And we watched it knowing nothing about the series at all. And yeah, at that first Jamie death where she gets like absolutely horrifyingly mangled by farm equipment, my dad was like, no, we're turning this off. So <laughs> I, we didn't get to finish it. And and because of that scene, I think he was under the impression that like these movies were like, like saw level, violent, horrible and disgusting based on that first kill. And it is shocking i still think to this day maybe it's because of my nostalgia for it but i I still think that's a pretty unnecessarily brutal kill it's Um, it's crass you know it's It's, yes crass is a good word it's it's rotten uh i had a guest use that word not long ago and i have to say it forever andy scott uh yeah it's a rotten moment so then it was a really long time before we even rented the very first one um and then i finally got into my halloween journey from there but yeah we had a bit of a uh, a slow start based on Halloween six. And uh, yeah, it, it gave me a very strange sort of stunted intro to the series. I also love this film. I have to say I oscillate on my feelings about Halloween six. I go from thinking it's trash to thinking it's really good and fun. And I rewatched it this weekend. And I have to say, I officially am on the side of loving it again. It is silly. It is genuinely scary in parts. It is, absolutely outrageous it's everything that a late like a sixth film in in a franchise should be the druid stuff you know but i i love it for who it is 
And also, what's the name of that older lady that gives the spiel about Samhain? She's cool. Oh, uh, Mrs. Blankenship. So yeah, I, I have to say Halloween Sex is definitely in my good books right now. Although, stop doing our heroines so dirty, Halloween franchise. You gotta stop doing this to me. I will say, I will give the movie props too. I think it works so well because it had a really solid foundation with Daniel Farron's script. You could tell that it was written by a true fan of the franchise who had tried to tie together all these disparate elements and, you know, was diving deep in, mm-hmm. uh, into the mythology that was even presented not in the movies, but in the, uh, the original novelization of the first film written by Curtis Richards. There's the six page prologue. I don't know if you've ever read it. If not, I will send mm-hmm. you snaps of it because I think you would love it. It opens like hundreds of years ago with a Celtic princess being murdered by a jilted lover or not even a jilted lover, like um, uh, kind of a a guy named Enda who was infatuated with her and she and her, you know, uh, lover as it were, you know, her, uh, her husband to be basically do this guy dirty. And um, so on the night of their wedding, their celebration, there's a big bonfire. Their entire tribe is dancing around the fire. Everyone's having a fun time. And Enda pulls a knife and murders both she and her husband in front of the entire, you know, Celtic clan. And so as a result, to get even with him, um, the high priest basically curses Enda um, for, and his bloodline for all time. And then the book, the novelization, basically makes it seem as though this curse followed one specific bloodline, which obviously turns out to be the Myers bloodline. And so you have kind of like the Mrs. Blankenship equivalent at the beginning of that novelization talking about how, uh, you know, Michael's grandfather, you know, there were issues with him when he had gone silent and, you know, horrible things, some uh, nameless Mm -hmm. horrible thing had happened. And uh, so you get the idea that what is driving Michael in that first story, at least according to the novelization, is the result of like a Celtic curse. And so I love that Farron's actually plucked that idea out of the novelization and wove it into the fabric of his film sequel. I think that's really neat. And it kind of, it kind of brings it closer to Halloween three in a way too, but um, I don't know. And then Stonehenge. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get the feeling too, like um, I know that a lot of people aren't necessarily enamored with Joe Chappelle's direction in the film. And I get that. I actually think he does a pretty solid job, but I will say this. I don't know if it was his call. I don't know if it was Farron's suggestion. I don't know if it was somebody else. I don't know if it was coincidence, but I will say I do appreciate the fact that not only does the movie nod to, you know, the previous films and classic horror and some of the setups and whatnot feel very classy and classic in a way, but they cast a couple of actors who had been in previous horror classics, the, uh, the young nurse who actually spirits Jamie to, well, brief safety at the very beginning, you know, who was mm-hmm. uh, part of the cult. She was in the, uh, the horror classic, the seventies horror classic, Audrey Rose. And then you have uh, mama Strode mm-hmm. being played by the woman who was in uh, don't be afraid of the dark, the original seventies TV movie. So I, I just think it has a really interesting pedigree. I think there is a respect that Halloween six shows not just its own franchise, but the genre. And, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people don't really discuss or want to see in the movie. I I think it's easy to lob stones at it because it's a wonky sixth entry that's easily overlooked now that we have these big prestige Blumhouse universal movies. But again, damn it, you know, I'll, I'll be the guy who uh, shakes my fist and uh, defends the movie and calls it good. Actually, damn it. Yeah. It, 
It is good. I had no idea that the Celtic origins go all the way back to the first film's novelization. That really surprises me. Uh, we'll get to it eventually. I forget which version of the Halloween 6 uh, origin script also like basically recreates that scene. Yes. Oh, I think it is the, 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 the 666 origin one where they, they, they transport themselves through VR into a Celtic, like a thousand years BC moment. And they sort of have a very similar sequence. Yeah. The, uh, the VR thing in the Phil Rosenberg script is a trip. <laughs> it's so weird. I can't lie to you. In my post-resurrection haze, I kind of thought it was funny and worth worth looking at this VR stuff, which we'll get to, get to in just a, a little bit. But yeah, I think that sums up my feelings about Halloween 6 in general. Um, if you don't mind, why don't we jump ahead into the version that we never got to see one of which titled halloween 666 the origin uh written by phil rosenberg so would you agree that this was one of the most troubled halloween productions in history i think it has to be the most troubled like from what i've read there is no like i didn't even understand what what the film was really until I really started diving deep into it for the longest time. I was under the impression that again, I was telling you about my phantom limbs master list, like Halloween six was at the top because you know, it's an important movie to me. Hell, I mean, there probably wouldn't be a phantom limbs if it wasn't for Halloween six in the first place. And so to me, I'd always heard about this Tarantino Halloween six that Scott Spiegel was going to direct. So To me, I'd always thought that it was one project, you know, one thing. Mm -hmm. And what I realized after uh, I was lucky enough to interview Scott Spiegel and I did some, you know, digging and what I realized is, is that it wasn't one project. It was kind of like three projects that were ultimately kind of Frankenstein together before the entire thing fell apart. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and what I found was if you want to go ahead and dive into it. Mm -hmm. So there was an idea, you know, after Halloween five had come out, Mustafa Akkad, who was the, you know, the godfather of the, uh, the Halloween franchise, he started casting about for potential writers for a Halloween six, not long after the fifth film had come out. And one of the writers that he approached was Quentin Tarantino, who at that point had written the spec screenplays, uh, true romance and natural born killers, neither of which had been made at that point. And so, Tarantino was approached and, you know, ultimately it didn't happen. But, um, yeah, even the fact that Tarantino was considered by Mustafa Akkad, you know, on the strength of the spec scripts, I think is pretty cool. Um, but you know, in in an interview with, uh, Michael Hoffman for consequence of sound, Tarantino said that, uh, basically he knew coming in the pitch on Halloween six, he knew that he would have to sort of account for the big mystery of Halloween five, which was, whoever the hell the man in black was, which nobody knew, you know, it was just a mystery Mm -hmm. that had no answer at that point. And apparently he never figured it out or he never cared to, he didn't know who he was. But the only thing that Tarantino said that he knew about his take on the movie was that in the first 20 minutes of the film, basically the man in black, who he describes as being kind of a Lee Van Cleef dude, which I love uh, the man in black and Michael, would just be traveling Route 66, stopping at like, you know, coffee shops and the like, 
with Michael killing everybody in sight, just, uh, you know, leaving a trail of bodies in their wake. And uh, essentially, I mean, it kind of sounds like the opening of Natural Born Killers, only with a man in black and Michael. And I kind of love that idea. But if for whatever reason, it just never happened. So mm-hmm. after it also kind of gives me a little bit of From Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, I'll totally at least cool. the first half of it. Yeah, and I mean, my God, how cool would that have been? You know, could you imagine oh, like so cool a Tarantino scripted Halloween at that point in his career? Like it, it oh God, it would have been amazing. But yeah, it yeah, but it didn't happen. And so they eventually, uh, Akkad had drafted a writer named Phil Rosenberg. So it seems like Phil Rosenberg, uh, the brother of I believe Scott Rosenberg, who is a working yes a screenwriter uh, in Hollywood, things to do in Denver when you're dead, which is great. Yes, and I think he did the new Jumanji films too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh wow! So he, yeah, working guy. Um, but uh, Phil had never written anything before. Was not in the union. Had nothing under his belt. Was just like a big horror fan at the time. Don't know how exactly he got involved with the Akkads, but I guess he had a pitch that they liked good enough, and they sort of clutched onto it for a really long time. Yeah, but this guy was not a professional. He hadn't worked on anything and he was just like a big horror fan and reading the script that he wrote, it, it kind of makes sense. It, it feels a little bit fan fictiony in a way. It, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I will say that impresses me then because on a technical level, I do think it's a pretty solid script. I think where it fails is I think it fails the characters and it fails the world that's been presented to us in Halloween up until that point. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, by having like Lovecraftian portals and VR trips into the past and shit like that, like very weird, uh, but should we, should we dive into like a synopsis of what it would have been? I would love it. Do you, would you be able to like give us a, a bit of a synopsis on this film with, with a deep breath? Yes, I can. So there was a draft that I read. It was dated April 6th, 1994. It's titled Halloween 666, the origin deep breath. Uh, the lead is a character named Dana Childress. She is a 22 year old NBC news reporter from Chicago who was, um, She's given an assignment to travel to Haddonfield with her, uh, <laughs> with like a news crew and her older colleague and potential love interest, even though the man is in his 40s. Uh, his name is uh, Robert Clifton, and their job is to, but their job is to cover the first Halloween celebration the town would have had in a half decade since the events of Halloween 5. Now, that's, that's basically story one. Then we're introduced to... Uh, <laughs> we're introduced to Tremblin' Tommy Doyle, which is maybe the worst wrestling nickname ever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> who is described as 29, tall, lean, and wild-haired. Um, and, I mean, much like in the eventual film, Tommy is portrayed as a Myers obsessive, you know, collecting um, <laughs> clippings and books and photos on the Halloween murders. And uh, <laughs> in, in a cutting-edge twist, Tommy also uses a virtual reality apparatus to project himself into realistic scenes of Celtic sacrifices. Wild. Yeah, that was a, uh, (laughs) that's a shame. um, Yeah, like a Ouija VR headset vibe. What the hell? Like, you know, it's it's so Mm -hmm, strange. It's such a weird choice. um, I guess they were very mystified by the internet in 1994. They just, it was very new. 
It, yeah, but what's crazy about a lot of those movies back in the 90s is that you're right. They do seem mystified by it, but they also have some pretty definite concrete ideas on how it all works. And then you watch those movies back then and it's like, no, you had no idea what the hell this was. Like, why? No, why? No, no, no. Why they weren't we? even and they, they didn't they didn't even like crack open a book. They're like, no one will ever know. We <laughs> know now, guys. We do. I I do love the lawnmower man, but it's 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 a tough watch at times. But do you love the lawnmower man too? No, no. Oh, I, I will say this: I uh, I was excited to see that movie back when it came out, and uh, a couple of years ago, after the Scream Factory edition of the first movie came out, I rewatched the director's cut. Still think it holds up. I really do love that movie. But you know what? I went ahead and bought the DVD for the sequel, which I think is called Job's War or something like that. Hell yeah. I watched the first 15 minutes of it and I actually genuinely found it to be unwatchable. Like there, there is no understanding of film language to be found in that movie. I just (laughs) could not do it, but I've uh, only heard about things. Oh, it's so bad. Uh, but love Matt Frewer, but he deserved better. Um, (laughs) Tommy in the script early on when we, uh, when we meet him, he even visits, um, he visits Sam Loomis like in this really early scene and we find out the poor Sam, he's housed in a mental ward after having uh, suffered two heart attacks. Um, and it was honestly, finally, cause this man was unwell for the last few films. He, okay. He, I, I would like to think that Rosenberg was trying to do Donald Pleasance a solid by only having him pop up in one screw, you know, one scene in the script. Uh, and really honestly, Loomis is only there to sort of pass the reins of the franchise onto Tommy, you know, Tommy mm-hmm. becomes a uh, Loomis 2.0. And then, uh, Which you I know, so- like, I do too. I, I think that yeah. would have been the way to go. But that's that's kind of like the second leg uh, or the second story, as it were, in Halloween 666. And then the third leg is Michael himself, who, and I like this. And I understand if people would hate this or find it funny, but I think there's a way to make this idea work. Michael is reintroduced in the screenplay as a homeless man sleeping in an alleyway next to a dumpster. And there's a sequence that follows this group of assholes dressed like uh, clockwork orange droogs who decide to celebrate oh, they're the holiday. dressed like that? I, yes. I, I didn't... Okay, that's heavy-handed. They are literally like it's Halloween and they're dressed like, yeah, all of the milk-slugging uh, droogs, you know, like a Malcolm McDowell led in clockwork orange. And uh, they decide to celebrate the holiday by viciously beating this guy who they expect to be a common homeless man. And... Uh, we then enter into a point of view shot, much like the uh, you know the original seventy eight films opening, where he basically murders all of the men pretty horrifically in the alley, and then um, you know Michael pops on over to a homeless shelter in search of a bed, and he sees a TV promo of Dana's station, you know, doing the uh, the return of Halloween to Haddonfield, and uh, you know I believe it says in the script it's quoted as saying uh, he storms out of the shelter, you know, it's pretty much on yeah, at he, that point. he she emotional, yeah. And then, uh, and that's a break someone's hand. I feel like in that scene, because they try to change the channel, which feels rude. (laughs) You don't, you don't fuck with Michael's viewing, you know? Um, No, 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 no. But that's it. That's, that's pretty much the setup. You have those three subplots that eventually dovetail with one another. And, you know, I mean, Dana and her crew pursue the story. Tommy sort of rages against the town's upcoming Halloween celebration. And then Michael just, glides around in the background until he's ready to strike and i will say there is pretty early on there's this it's pretty goofy but it's a still pretty fun scene 
Michael goes to the small shop and he, he, he murders the owner in this very uh, Friday the 13th style kill. He uses a uh, barbecue fork and he plunges it into the back of the guy's head Sick. and out of his mouth. And, you know, the poor man's dentures sort of hang on the tines of the barbecue fork, you know? <laughs> oh, but, um, but it's here, the reason he went there, you know, it's here where he's reunited with the uh, the shape mask, you know, the Shatner mask that he's become uh, kind of synonymous mm-hmm. with. And um, <laughs> there's a quote directly out of the script where Michael actually mask shops. And I kind of love it. He, uh, it, it's, and I quote, he picks up a Freddy Krueger mask, casts it aside, picks up a Jason mask, casts it aside. At last, he pulls down one of the signature Michael masks. He tears off the price tag and puts it on. He turns to us. The fit is still good after all these years. Michael Amble... <laughs> I can't even say this with a straight face. Michael Amble's out of the store. Party time. <laughs> oh, gosh. It Listen, says party time. And it is, because it's party time. So many... Ref- like it's It's cringy when things reference the real horror universe that we live in it, it i yeah yeah this I movie do. does this a bunch like there's real hellraiser references there's real friday the 13th references just allude to it or or make it sort of like something different when you when you really touch base with our reality of franchises you lose me right away i do love that michael kind of pulls a goldilocks in the store and finds the porridge that's just right with his shit. that's mask, true you know and he is the OG. Like this is this is the guy. This happens in the Etchison Halloween Four too, where uh, there's all of those different horror movies playing on the three drive-in screens. There's like a sequence where he's being like where where Jason Voorhees is being projected onto Michael Myers as Michael Myers kills someone, and it's always kind of alluding to the fact that Michael is the OG, and these guys kind of swept in afterwards, which is true pretenders you know i do love the etchison script for you know there's a sequence where michael is is he like 12 feet or is he like 40 feet it's something crazy I know, it's but, 12 feet i always thought it was like 40 feet but it's only 12 feet well i love that idea simply because uh you know there was the idea that michael in that is kind of like a tulpa you know he is created by mm-hmm. thought he's created by the fears of the town and i i remember reading a review of the script once where they were like um and this was ages ago when it was finally on Earth. And they were like, yeah, for some reason, Michael grows to be like 12 feet. And it's like, well, that's not arbitrary. You know, they're all <laughs> watching, you know, these slashers on a big screen. So all of a sudden, these slashers, the, this killer becomes larger than life. So, of course, Michael would be 12 feet tall at that point. You know, I have oh, no yeah. idea if they would would have been able to pull that off in that movie, like visually. But oh, God, no. I would I would have been up for. I love that drunk. script though. I have to say, all of these unmade scripts that I've read for the series, except for this one, have been really good. Have been better than the things that actually got produced at the end of the day, which is not surprising. Hundred percent, yeah. And um, and this one, you know, it's um, it it yeah, it, it has its problems, but some of it's, it's a okay. silly girl. It's a silly bee, but um, it has a lot to love. Something that I was hoping you'd be able to expand upon is the Judith Myers portal into another dimension. Do you think you could give us a bit of a seminar on, on that plot of the story? Cause I'd love to know more seminar. No, because I don't know what the hell is going on there, but I can tell you what happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, good enough. As a reader, I can tell you what I think happens. Uh, basically in the strangest twist possible, Tommy's housemates steal the headstone of Judith Myers 
why would you do that? Uh, that's like mistake. You, you don't steal would the headstone. Not, oh, I guess not. Not a real dead person, actually. Yeah. Well, not a real dead person, but in the world of Halloween, if you're going to steal a headstone, don't steal the headstone of the sister of Michael fucking Myers. That's like you know, you, you don't Sounds stand smart. in a mirror and say Candyman five times, and you don't steal the shape's sister's headstone. That's two two things you don't do. Um, but they did it. They did it. And, um, as a result, when they do that, somehow, some way it tears a hole in the fabric of reality leading to another world. And, um, yeah, yeah. They're like, um, I, I think at one point there are tentacles glimpsed inside of the other. Uh, oh, really? Like I, I definitely heard about the tentacle stuff. I, I thought maybe that was in like a later Spiegel. Like, like a like a touch up version, but was no, that the tentacles were Spiegel, in this version? I think I, you know, I might be conflating two. Things. I know there's so uh, many, there's so many versions of this project in the world. He, I know that Spiegel didn't want to do that, but I think he's the one who said that. Now that you mentioned that, I think he's the one who said that there were tentacles, but in the Rosenberg draft that I read, there weren't. But there is like. Yes. A light play, like there's like an opening, like a portal or whatever. And then from there, you know, we, uh, I think Clifton gets killed by Michael. The man mm. in black is revealed to be a, oh my God, to be father oh Carpenter. Who okay. sounds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is important. I don't understand this. Like, it, okay. So he's revealed to be father Carpenter, but everything about his description and his dialogue, it sounds very much like Reverend Jackson Sayer from Halloween 4. Which it, I think it is supposed to be. <laughs> I think it is supposed to be him. But why did they call him Father Carpenter? And why because does they're, he go- they're stupid. And they why, made a mistake. I was going to say, why does he go from being a reverend to like... To being uh, a priest? To being a priest. Like, yeah, it just, it's like... I, I think a- he just didn't know there was a difference between the two things to be honest Rosenberg. i hate to say it i think that's it it's just like and eh. i wouldn't either listen we're jews what the hell how are we supposed to know this stuff and he didn't have the internet can we leave rosenberg alone sorry priest no. reverend uh, whatever they're all the same. <laughs> whatever um it is a fun character and it is one that i'm kind of like no it should not have come back he's very funny in part in part four the priest that gets drunk in the car with dr loomis and then dr loomis is like i like you you're like me crazy um, i'd love to see a road movie with those two the kinship that loomis finally finds with another fucking batshit insane yeah life. yeah and it's, it, the first time we see him smile without like mania yeah, it's well, like there was he, a little mania. He feels he found a brother at one, uh, you know. And plus, <laughs> yeah. what's crazy is I'd like to think that somewhere out in the ether, there is an entire franchise where Reverend Jackson P. Sayre is hunting his own evil, <gasps> and who's he's like Michael. his own. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God, he, yeah, he's yes, yes. I love it. I love, I love the song. You know, <laughs> oh, we're gonna find the river. I dig it. Uh, he's Carmen Philby. He is. He is a gem in that film. Oh my god, you know your shit, Jinx. That's <laughs> so impressive that you had that at the go. But he. But and that's part of the reason I dislike the uh, the Rosenberg draft is that they take this character who is very obviously, even though he's crazy, he is obviously kind of a force for good, who is yeah. hunting yeah. evil, not to be a part of it, to obviously demolish it. And here it turns him into just a weird, goony fucking guy. And it's like, why? Why do that? Um, it, why turn him into, you know, a villain? Why turn him? In, it just, it doesn't bad make writing. sense. That's why. Bad, bad writing. Also calling him Father Carpenter is 
the most cringe move of all time. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And yeah, and now he's evil and like is trying to, I don't know. I don't really understand his purpose other than it's that it's bad. What is his deal? What is what is his objective in this in the script, in your opinion? Well, that's a great question. Um, I don't think it's one that the <laughs> script cares to answer. Um, okay. Maybe Rosenberg thought he would get the gig to write Halloween 7 to explain that shit at some point, but it never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, no, 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 he sure didn't. You know what um, else is crazy? Tell me. Dana is revealed to be Michael's long-lost third sister. So this is Again. a family that continues to expand. Uh, we we got twenty three and me, honey. <laughs> we we have in the second act, in the back half of the second act, we have Tommy using his VR rig and a Salwin program, uh, like you noted, like a high tech Ouija board to show Dana Michael's origins. That again, you know, going back to the uh, the original novelization. I see. Here's the thing, though. I don't believe. I can't believe that Rosenberg was such a fan that he went back and read the novelization that Curtis Richards wrote because it doesn't. What but it's the same it. thing. It's the same setting, but it's a different. Like, I, I don't know. It's a thousand. It's it's one thousand BC in a Celtic village where a priest curses a king because he wouldn't sacrifice himself. It, yeah, it's a little different story wise, but well, but I, there's so misses, much that are the same. It, it it totally like I think it's definitely the same setting. Obviously. You know, Rosenberg probably saw the second film, heard the the name Sam Hain, and so oh, and yeah, was like, "Okay, well, you know, I can I can do something with this." Whereas, what I love about Curtis Richards' novelization is that in his origin, he's able to find all the things that are now hallmarks uh, with slasher films. We have young people, you know, we have sexual desire, you know, we have like. Uh, celebrations mm-hmm. you know we have like uh, and weirdly enough even though this wasn't the case in halloween it becomes a case in later slasher films we have a slasher to be a burgeoning killer who is humiliated um and that drives his mania later on so whereas mm-hmm. you know what rosenberg does is kind of like you know it's just it's kind of dull you know it, it doesn't work as well for me because and it's in it's in ouija vr in 1994 because it would have been yeah, because he yeah. wrote this in 1994. Ouija VR in 1994. I say it with attitude. I don't mean to. I love you it. You should. No, please do. No, no, <laughs> I support it. I like it. I, it definitely, definitely would have been hated enormously from 1995 till 2020. People would yeah. not have liked Well, that. not only that, but you have Michael getting tricked. Okay, not only do you open a portal into another world, but yeah. you have Dana. You have 22-year-old Dana. Dana. Tricking Michael by leading him into a cemetery and tricking him into falling into the other world do, fissure do, do, at his sister's do, do. grave. Portal closes, taking Michael to hell. Dana and Tommy survive. And then Father Carpenter slash Reverend Jack laughs to himself at the end, which kind of clues us in that, uh, you know, Michael work. Michael isn't going to be very, gone for very long. There's this. Yeah, because they had to do it by 1 a.m. How dare. Okay, so in case people aren't totally up to speed with the true chaos outrageousness of this subplot, somehow when uh, Dana and Tommy. I think Dana goes into the VR back to the fucking 1000 BC. She discovers within there that Judith Myers's gravestone is this portal to the Celtic 
other worlds and that the only way to get rid of Michael is to, yeah, send him through the portal back into Celtic other worlds. And then that would be the only way to save her life because otherwise he would relentlessly supernaturally keep going until he killed her and anyone else in the bloodline. What? <laughs> Sorry. What? Huh? But yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but I, 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 I love it. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just felt like no, no, please to know. Yeah, it's uh, it's all kind of terrible. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, so it should come as no surprise to anyone that uh, Mustafa Akkad read the script and is. I don't care if this story is apocryphal or not. I choose to believe it's true. When he finished reading the script, he threw it across the room. <laughs> I've heard it too. It has to be real. It has to be real because it's such an iconic Hollywood story. It's almost as were you the one? Okay, there's the story about James Cameron and his pitch for Aliens. Have you heard about this? Are you the one no, that informed no, me no. that it was a lie? Okay, someone informed me this was a lie. So this isn't true, but it's a it's an urban legend that James Cameron went in to go pitch Alien Two, and all he did was he had a whiteboard and it said Alien, and then he added an S at the end and then like a, like a line through it to show that it would make money. Okay. You know what? We're going to go ahead and print the legend on that one and say that that's true because it deserves <laughs> yeah. to be, it deserves it, to be true. It's so good. And then, yeah, but it's, 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 it's not real, but it's, it's real. You know what I mean? I, I just choose to believe that after he did that, after he put the S and the two, you know, two we marks like, to make it a dollar sign, he should have just, just tapped the board and said, game changer bye he drops the mic goodbye <laughs> um something that interests okay before wait before i move on to the gehenna behind the scenes of <laughs> halloween six i am okay to wrap up on father carpenter saying it makes me want to die they had a character <laughs> in halloween retribution called dr hill that worked other than the fact that it was a man come yeah, on guys dr hill is a woman get it together this Anytime someone like names a character after a legacy horror director, I want to slap them in the face. I want to just go slap you. It's, no, it's too obvious, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. no, I'm yeah. We, we Halloween deserves a heroine named after Deborah Hill. Like it's it's long past time. Or even just Deborah would be great. Deborah would be an amazing Gen Z name. Bring they back sh- Deborah. I feel like it would be a cool name. The Halloween 18 series, they totally should have named the granddaughter Deborah. Like, come they on. They should have done a lot of things in Halloween 2018, actually. <laughs> um, I talk about it a lot. I have received uh, a listener feedback oh, that they get it, that I don't like Halloween 2018. But you're going to hear about it because Halloween 2022 is about to come out. And I get to review it for Dread Central. I'm not saying I made up my mind. I haven't seen it yet. Maybe I'll love it. It may be great. I, I hope that it is. I genuinely do. Because I'm a fan of the franchise and I'm always wishing it well. I will say this. <laughs> I am concerned that okay. every piece of marketing that I see from three minute long trailers to 20 second TV spots and everything in between for every new stitch of footage that I see, I have yet to see a single human being in any of those bits utter a line that doesn't sound like some grand declaration. Like there Mm -hmm. there are no human beings speaking in this movie. Apparently everybody is like, no evil dies tonight. Let's hunt him down. It It just come on. I I mean, listen, these are fair critiques. I would say that I'm okay with it. 
Um, I want it to be like back to Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 and the crappy like canon sequels where it stops trying so hard and you just give me a crappy Halloween sequel that I've been waiting so long to watch. It just, just, it can be fun. Just make it fun and scary. That's yeah, all it needs to be. don't make it try so hard. And also it's so mask for mask these days. It's so like dudely with the guns and the action. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, everybody. No, um, I think this was necessary. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So Halloween 666 Origin by Phil Rosenthal is... Burke. A ch- Burke. Thank you. A messy nightmare. Love it, though. I was wondering, oh, did we talk about John Carpenter's bid to get in a Halloween 6? Because I don't think we did, and I kind of want to get it on the table. No, I didn't know he was ever attached to 6. I knew about yes, 4 yes, and yes, yes. 7. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to, I want, I hopefully I blow your mind with this one. So, okay. After Halloween 5, I believe this is the case. I could be wrong. I had waited too long to make a 6 film, and I believe the rights reverted. And so there was a bidding war to get the rights to continue the Halloween franchise. Akkad teamed up with Miramax so they could bid together and save some shekels. But someone else that was in the bidding war was John Carpenter. And John Carpenter had a pitch for Halloween 6. And there are quotes from him, I believe, in Fangoria back in the day. So it was legit. He wanted to send our dear friend Michael into space. Oh, I have heard of this. Okay, yeah. yeah. Straight-faced. Yeah. Like, not no humor, no, like, irony here. Um, he wanted to send Michael into space. He believed because it would take it in a whole new direction. True, literally. And, um, yeah, you could never come back. And I say, uh, say that to Leprechaun 5 because they did come back. I, I think he was just talking about the quality. Like, there's no coming back from that. Um, <laughs> That's true. You know, I, that... I choose to believe he was talking about space. That <laughs> There's no coming back from space. Which, I mean, there is. But I can't tell you the mechanics of that. The only thing I have to say to that is... Uh, John. <laughs> John. John. Come on, John. John. It's probably it's probably trolling. He was pro- it was probably like an ultimate troll move. Where he was like, you did this to my franchise... Now I'm going to take a big dump on it. And I, ha 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 you. I do love that about Carpenter. There's this kind of Jekyll and Hyde thing with him. I, I met him at a convention. There was a long line. Uh, it wasn't too terribly long at the time, but I've seen massive lines for him. And I, every person I know of who has met him, like at conventions, and I can say this was my experience and the experiences of everybody in front of me because I was watching to see what kind of dude he was like soft-spoken, completely gracious, very nice man, you know, complete gentleman. But then you get like interviews with him or something, yeah. and he seems like a grumpy old man. And I just, there's this Jekyll and Hyde thing that I kind of love with him where, you know, I believe that he might be trolling people when he talks about the uh, Michael in space idea. You know, he, he woke up. I, I believe he would make that. it, but I do think there's a trolling vibe to it. Yes. You know what? Have him make Escape from Earth with Snake Plissken, round out that trilogy, and let one of Snake's obstacles be the shape in space. You know? <gasps> it rhymes. Yeah. I like that. Uh, he, and, uh, he did go on to make Ghosts of Mars not too long after that, so clearly he, oh, yeah. he had space on the brain. He did. He sure did. Go- Ghosts of Mars, uh, never seen it, never will probably. Not a bad concept. I only have one thing to say about Ghosts of Mars. John, 
John. 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 And Shocker. <laughs> hey, Shocker is good at least. <laughs> Why not? Shock- I Wait don't a second. Know I have something. Shocker is- okay, you fooled me. Shocker is Wes Craven. Well done. You oh, no. Jo- well, I'm cutting that out. I can't look like a fool. <laughs> I can't portray. I can't be that much of a fool. I recently got a new comment. No, uh, 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 what's it called where someone leaves a review on Apple I- iTunes? And it was three stars. And he just complained that I definitely got the, the year wrong to Jaws 3. And oh, that my geez. guest had it right. And then I course corrected them back to wrong again. And you know what? That deserves a three-star review. Sorry. I, I was belligerently wrong about Jaws 3. Uh, not, not my least favorite movie, guys. Not my least favorite movie. Uh, I will say that Jaws 3D is better than Jaws the Revenge. So there's that. I have never seen Jaws the Revenge, but I'm so curious. I have to see it at some point. I did, yeah. So this episode was about Jaws 3 people 0. Um, yeah, I remember. But I'm a I listener, would, I told you. <laughs> I know, I can't believe it. I won't believe it. Who could listen? All of you do and never stop. I'd love to see that, but I would love to see Jaws the Revenge next summer. I'm going to have to come back to that. Oh, uh, well. Um, good luck. <laughs> I love the idea of a Jaws, yes, I'm call, not a shark, of a Jaws, like, traveling hundreds of or thousands or hundreds of thousands of miles for revenge. So beautiful. When, it's like a reverse Moby Dick. <laughs> when you get the chance, when you watch that um, atrocity of a film, <laughs> make certain that you immediately follow it up with Richard Jenny's stand-up bit about that particular movie, because it will have okay. you in tears. It is so I'm good. excited now. Oh, now I'm sad I have to wait all the way until summer because I refuse to watch Jaws movies outside of summer because they're so good in the summer. I don't know where you're at right now, but I got to tell you, uh, in the Midwest, from what I've heard, and I can tell you for a fact, in Florida right now, it, it still feels like summer. So, Oh, no global warming. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a stone throw away from Halloween, but it's 85 degrees, so what the fuck? It's hot here in Toronto, too, but you do have the leaves looking a little different, so visually you're getting the vibes. It doesn't feel like the Halloween season has begun in earnest yet. It, it feels like a lie, and I don't like it. I see. I don't know. How can you say that? Because we're both in the middle of our Halloween series, <laughs> is, and we have, I'm assuming, I can't speak for you, I can only imagine, been devouring so much Halloween content in the past month. I did, you know, I did rewatch Halloween 6 in advance of this chat, and that was the first Halloween movie that I've watched so far. So I'm, yeah, I'm oh. ready. I'm, 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 I need to dive in. I need to, it's been about three years since I've done a full series rewatch, and I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm going to have to do that in the next week. I love that for you. I really do. It's just so we can get you to resurrection. I, I will go ahead and clue you in on something right now, just to spur on like part of our conversation for the hell of it. I have Halloween six running in the background right now. So uh, that's good podcasting. That's that's good journalism, actually. It's, it's a good trick. Looking at uh, looking at Jamie Lloyd's placental fluid as we speak. So uh, oh, yeah, I like how. Okay, the scene in Halloween 6 where Tommy goes to the bus station and it's just, first of all, there's just a baby in the basement screaming, nobody cares. And then there's also just this woman's blood and placenta fluid literally everywhere to the point where they come and collect it. And everyone's just like, "Eh, it's a bus station. Very outrageous. I just wanted to see the scene where, you know, somebody walked into that bathroom, like in a hurry to catch their train. They see this poor girl, like where there's like blood everywhere, and obviously something horrific has happened. 
And then they shrug and use the urinal anyway. You know, they that got is things to do. Such a, that's a bus station vibe, okay? That that you know what I'm making fun of the movie, but bus stations that is the energy of bus stations. Oh, it bus totally stations. is. It's, it's real. It's real. If somebody saw that, um, if somebody saw the kid like screaming like in a cabinet hidden away, they would the, shrug, uh, piss, and then tell themselves, "Ain't none of my business." I mean, in Haddonfield, you know, you want to stick out of trouble. Um, yeah, absolutely. I have to say, I, I am making fun of it, but the first segment where she stops the truck and goes in to the to the bus stop or the bus station. Really good. Really spooky. It is No, it's, there are sequences in this movie. Um, I mean, Michael, um, killing Kara's mother, like stalking her around the house, you know, like going inside and then meeting her like out in the yard, like that shot looking up and she's just like, Michael, and he's carrying an ax. And then you see the, the whip of the ax and the blood spattering, the sheets fluttering in the wind. Like it's beautiful. Provocative sequence. Uh, this movie, no bullshit, holds maybe one of the finest, I would say, among the finest five seconds in any slasher film, maybe any horror film ever. And I say that with a straight face. I mean it genuinely. It's also one of the greatest bits of performance that anybody ever gave Can in I any guess? horror film. Can Please. I guess? I'm going to get it wrong, but I had a similar reaction watching it this time around. So... My impulse is that I'm wrong, but I'm going to give it anyways, just in case I'm right. Paul Rudd, in front of, like, there's these beautiful orange lights and the trees outside before it starts raining blood. So that's my official guess. Okay, so that's a good one. And I'm actually, weirdly enough, close to that moment uh, in the film right now. He is, uh, I think Paul Rudd is genuinely great in this movie. And it is is a Paul Rudd moment, so you're close. Um, Oh, there is a sequence in the theatrical cut that I think is absolutely amazing. and Nobody talks about it. I, w- I would write articles about this one moment. There is a sequence where, okay, so I got to say, happening on screen right now is John Strode stalking through the house, asking where his dinner is. He is about three minutes away from getting fried in his basement. He's uh, good in I, this. I, I believe that that guy was real. The performance is fantastic. Yeah, I took really good. To Twitter. I, I told you I rewatched this movie yesterday. I took to Twitter. I, I posted a pic of him and I noted that were it not for the fact that he was decapitated via electrocution, that dude would have been MAGA as hell. Oh, I'm sad that you took it that direction. Cause I was going to say, yeah, he's a piece of shit, but he's a daddy. It's kind of hot. Sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. He's, but he is. But he's mega as hell. There's no you, doubt about you it. You give him 20 years, that dude would have worn a red hat. Like, you oh, know. Oh, no. Well, he's certainly not nice to his family. So that's a, that's, you know, a step in the direction, I think. So. He's like. He's yeah. Like, yeah. You're not wrong. He's like Biff from Back to the Future. If you age him up a little bit and smack him in the face with a shovel a couple of yeah, times. Yeah, he is. Okay. Well, character aside, kind of into him, kind of hot. Um, sure. But character you know, here, no, of course, of course, I can't, I can't support that spousal and daughter abuse. It's terrible. It's so rude. He's a dick. He's a total dick. And he dies real bad slash good. But. And it's scary a, too. Yeah. Although it doesn't make any sense because nobody's head does that when you electrocution. Like I wasn't looking. I, I, I'm a, I'm still a baby. These movies I've seen a thousand times. I don't look at the really gross scenes. What? I just can't. Yeah, I can't. I couldn't look at, I couldn't look at uh, Jamie. I couldn't look at that one. I didn't look. I'm a bigger baby than prob. If you know me, you'll know because I'll watch a movie and 50% of it is me with my fingers and my ears rocking back and forth and my eyes closed. Why do I like horror? 
I don't know. I okay, so what you need to do, you just need to sort of baby step your way toward watching harder stuff. Um, just <laughs> okay. So start with something not that bad. Um, there's a movie called a Serbian film. Just rent mm, it. Okay, I'm writing this down. Hold on, I'm writing it down. A Serbian. Yeah, film. just got it. Just got it. Give that one a shot. You know, keep your eyes open during the entire time. And I will say, okay, I will. I will. I'll, when, it's 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 gateway horror, right? It, totally. When you make it okay. to the end of that, you're going to be mm-hmm. able to watch anything. Trust me on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right. And you're talking about the American remake, of course. Oh God, no. There's there's no <laughs> such thing. There's no. Uh, there's With no. Starring Little Liars. <laughs> there should be because there is. <laughs> there is, and it stars a pretty little liar. Don't know how to say her name. All right, so I will uh, say John Strode does not give uh, one one of my favorite bits of performance in any horror film ever. But <laughs> oh, oh, Paul right, Rudd, right. Paul Rudd does, and uh, yours was a good guess. Okay. But actually, it's this moment in the theatrical cut only where Tommy is in the bowels of Smith's Grove. He finds Kara. He's trying to beat the door open with a fire extinguisher. And he senses something. And he turns. And there is the shape having just stepped out of a door, like his own room. Like he's just hanging in the basement of Smith's Grove as well, like lying on a cot when he's not busy killing people. Mm-hmm. And the shape turns and looks at him like, the fuck is that guy doing there for? Like what's he? What's he think he's doing? And so, Paul Rudd as Tommy Doyle. There's this amazing moment where he stands there staring at the shape, like in in abject horror, which is great. And then it turns into this movie where this moment where he lets out this exasperated laugh. He just grins ear to ear and gasps and laughs, and it feels so Real? real. It yeah, feels like it such a real, it's such a big swing, and yet it feels completely true to the guy he's playing. And I love that moment so much. I it's my yeah, favorite it's moment in the entire film. It's so good, and he's so good, and it's so close to being absolutely terrible. But he he nails it. He's just going at a ten. He knows what he's doing too. He's about to become the world's most famous hunk, and here here there's like nothing to lose really. And he's just delivering it. It feels almost hammer horror y. Yeah, he's he's got a decent career ahead of him, I think, that Paul Rudd, you know? Mm-hmm. And he looks exactly the same. It's like, fucking freaky. It's point. weird. Like, we're gonna have to start asking some tough questions in about five years. It's like, the he... Druids. Sorry. <laughs> it, he's, it should he, always be the Druids. That man, it, it's like him and Jennifer Lopez. They're baby mm-hmm. they're there's totally baby's mm-hmm. blood involved, all right? Yes, they're, yes. Elizabeth Bathory has helped both of these with their skincare routines. 100%. Like, there's there's no other way around. And that's fine, because they look great. Um, and that's so funny. Yeah, there's some... This movie is really good, really beautiful. Okay, so that scene where John Strode finds, I believe, someone's head in a... Or not someone's head, but, like, bloody clothing in a, like, machine, like a laundry machine yeah had me thinking like that's a trope like there's so many horror movies and it's usually a head where someone finds like a body part or bloodiness or like a head in a laundry machine and then a die immediately after do you do are you is what i'm saying resonating well i mean there's kind of a range there because on the one hand you have my bloody valentine where somebody hears a thumping in a dryer yes or a washer and they open it up and it is a head, and it's creepy, and it's awesome, and it's even better in the unrated cut of that film. But then you have the flip side of that, where, 
where you have a dryer that's making a thumping sound and the character moves up to it and they open it and they hold their hands out expectantly and their tennis shoes fly right into Brandy's hands and I still what you did still know what you did last summer. Uh, that's amazing. And uh, so, you know, I appreciate both. I appreciate both. Uh, you know, just that's uh, so funny. First of all, I, I genuinely thank you for the I, I still know what you did last summer reference. There needs to be more of them. Um, movies a blast and I'm gonna give you one more example I feel like there's a similar scene in Identity that is sort of basing a lot of my opinion on ooh that's a good movie Uh, that's a movie that nobody talks about now that is a movie that I agree nobody talks about where is Identity 2 baby Identity Harder are you busy yeah you're busy well I I mean given the end of the first movie she's probably not that busy Um, no that's true I feel like none of them are um, you know what? It also, it reminds me of another movie that no one ever talks about: Suspect Zero. That's what? one no one talks about, right? That is a very good movie. The uh, the long distance viewing, the psychic, Ben Kingsley, creepy battle. I saw it in theaters with my dad. I feel like no one else was there because no one else has seen that movie but you and me and my dad. But I love it. Yeah, and a buddy of mine. Uh, he, I remember <laughs> Carrie Ann Moss vehicle. Sorry. Yeah, and Aaron Eckhart. I mean. It- I, I love it. There should have been a follow-up. I understand why there wasn't, but there should have been. Uh, weirdly enough, from the director of uh, was it E. Elias Marriage, the guy who did, uh, I think it was either Begotten or Misbegotten, and he also did Shadow of the Vampire, mm. the movie about the making of Nosferatu. Well, that I know. Okay, so this is a, a art house uh, Arthur over here. Yeah, yeah, and they got him to do their big studio serial killer movie. And what's great about it is that movie could have been crass and commercial and yet another ripoff of Silence of the Lambs a decade after its relevancy. And because they brought that guy in, he made it something special. Totally. It kind of feels pre-Zodiac, kind of. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. God, Zodiac's a great film. I would say Zodiac has one of the... No, the scariest murder scene, I think, for me... In any movie, which is the by the river or by the lake sequence. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tying it's them up too and... realistic. I think, <sighs> I don't know, I haven't seen it in so long, partially because of that scene, but I think it's one of the most realistic, like, slayings I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, and it's it's just, I, I think what's so scary about it is it's nonchalance. You know, oh. it's just... It, <laughs> too scary! That is, that is a masterpiece of a film. Um, but yeah, yeah. it truly is. Oh, I and- mean... I feel like, wow, we've really covered a lot of terrain. I'm really proud of us. This was And we haven't even gotten to Scott Spiegel's take yet. Oh my god, yes, of course, which is sort of what I'm most excited about, and which I have the least information on, because I'm kind of relying on your knowledge here. So should we move on to the Scott Spiegel world of it all? Let's do it. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, I am too. So do you want to give us, if you can, like a bit of a reminder of how... Scott Spiegel got involved, which was through Tarantino, but then like how we got to his sort of iteration through Rosenberg's. Yes. So Rosenthal. by this point, uh, Mustafa Akkad had sold off the distribution rights. Uh, he sold the distribution rights off the Miramax uh, for dimension films, you know, uh, Miramax's genre arm. They were doing all of their horror and sci-fi stuff and whatnot. And, by this point in the project's history, Tarantino had already made Reservoir Dogs. He had already made Pulp Fiction, and From Dusk Till Dawn was not that far off in the future. So Miramax, who had a relationship with Tarantino, obviously, asked him and his producing partner, Lawrence Bender, if they knew of a director who would be a good fit for Halloween 6. 
And they both suggested the same guy, Scott Spiegel, who is known for, I believe he co-wrote Evil Dead 2. He did a great slasher movie called Intruder, which if you've never seen it, that movie is so much fun. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And um, it is it is like pure grindhouse, but winking and nodding to the audience and just having fun, but also has just marvelous practical effects. The kills in the movie it. are insane. Is this before Evil Dead 2? Yeah. yeah. It's right around the same time. In fact, okay. one of the main characters, well, I wouldn't say main characters, one of the side characters, rather, is played by Sam Raimi. Ah. <gasps> uh, Love it. Yeah, and Ted Raimi figures into it too. Um they were cuties back in the day. Yeah. Sorry about it. They really were. I got you. Like uh, weird cuties, but that's my type. <laughs> but uh yeah, so Intruder was awesome. Bob Weinstein screened Intruder and from that point was like totally on board with Spiegel as the choice to direct Halloween six. So that was kind weird. of like you know, Dimensions input at this point as distributor, and of course it being the Weinsteins, they were all about trying to force their uh, <laughs> their choices on yep. on the filmmakers. Uh, so even though yep. they were only there to distribute the movie, uh, I just did a recent Phantom Limbs on a, what would have been the fourth Crow movie. It was going to be the Crow Lazarus, which would have starred DMX and Eminem. And it was the same. I remember. I, I remember. That's awesome. It, it was the, you know, it's the same damn story where it's like, you know, the Crow belongs to Edward Pressman. And Miramax, they were only like the distributors. That's that's all. But the way the deal was worked out, like they had this weird kind of veto power where it's like, yeah, you can go ahead and make your movie. But if it's not what we want to make, then we'll just release your movie in one theater and it'll make $20,000 and fuck you. And so I'm guessing that's kind of the same thing that happened with Halloween because, again, they're just distributors. And yet here they are bringing a director to the table. Uh, you know, for Mustafa Akkad and company to sort of approve. And so, you know, with Spiegel being Weinstein's choice, and I should mention here, I, I was able to speak to uh, Scott Spiegel in an interview last year, nicest guy, and told me loads of like really cool stuff. Um, he mentioned that at this point, he and Tarantino might have thrown around some ideas, but uh, because it, to me, I was still like, under the assumption that it was all one big project. Like Tarantino was going to write it and Spiegel was going to direct it. And again, that's not really the case. Like Tarantino was approached years prior. He came up with a little bit of a take, but it never went through. And then they went to Rosenberg. And then from Rosenberg, we get to Scott Spiegel. So when Spiegel was in the mix, he and Tarantino, he said, might have batted around some ideas. But ultimately, Scott Spiegel was given Rosenberg's beat sheets, you know, kind of noting like what the story was, you know, in little bullet points. And Spiegel took the ideas from Rosenberg's beat sheets that he and the producers had liked. And then he kind of, you know, he came up with his own take. He made his own notes on the story. At that point, he was given Rosenberg's full draft, which, uh, <laughs> which he did not care for. Uh, he commented on it in an interview with Fangorio, uh, apparently when he didn't realize that he was on the record and he really, hmm. really, just really well, knocking the I hell out of it. it. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, Rosenberg later responded in a letter that was published in Fango 151 that I mentioned in the Postal Zone where he... Uh, oh, he I read that too. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was, he was, he was unhappy. Uh, he, so he, rude about Intruder, by the way. So sassy. He, he was, but he was hurt. 
you know. Um, but he, <laughs> he and hurt people, hurt people. Exactly. He he took a few pot shots in uh, in return, and um, so this but he did part- say he he liked Evil Dead too, which was funny. Yeah, yeah, but it was kind of like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I might have liked Evil Dead too, but it was probably all Raimi. You know, it's like yeah, you, you you get that feeling from his uh, from his family. But yeah, you know, Scott Spiegel doesn't need to prove himself to anyone. He's he's awesome. But uh, you know, at this point, like Tarantino wasn't involved in the story, and according to Spiegel, he likely only ever would have been a producer if anything on this version. It was never. Well, I won't say never, but he said it wouldn't necessarily have been something like Quentin Tarantino presents Halloween six. You know, it wasn't going to be. That. I know. And I so badly want to title this episode Quentin Tarantino presents Halloween six. I can't do it because it literally was quoted that that's exactly what it wasn't. <laughs> you should do that and then just let people wonder. Let let them get to this point in the podcast where they're like, uh-huh. the and, and say, gotcha. Exactly. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, yeah that let, may happen, guys. Sorry. Go, ahead, go ahead and do that right now. Go ahead and just turn right into your mic and just just like gotcha gotcha bitches sorry <laughs> love it you know what that's how i feel love it um so spiegel came up with his take uh you know there was the possibility of bringing on uh, graveyard shift screenwriter john esposito graveyard shift yeah. the Stephen king adaptation not the uh the vampire in a cab movie um so that was kind of more i'm sorry over. i thought it was the rats one wow the, the, yeah no it is it's the stephen king one and not the vampire one Oh, um, oh, okay. I'm so confused, and now I'm less confused. Thank you. No, <laughs> and so, and according to him, like he was told that he might have even been given the option to write the thing as well as you know just directing it as well. But the last hurdle that he had to sort of uh, make was meeting with Mustafa Akkad, and Spiegel. He he noted that Akkad wanted his own guy. Whereas he was Bob Weinstein's guy, you know, but he was given the thumbs up though. And he, so sad, like he was given the thumbs up. He had a celebratory dinner and Luzon Franks, like, you know, because, Hey, I'm directing Halloween six and, you know, take everybody out, buy them dinner. Like we're going to celebrate. And then like 48 hours later, his approval was pulled. And it's like fuck, rough, like that stuff. Spiegel said he so dimension films though. They're well, just that, that's the thing. So that, it, evil. It wasn't them. Uh, they were all about him. It was it was actually Mustafa oh. Akkad. Um, right. Sorry. It's always one or the other because those <laughs> dimension and Akkad clearly did not have a good relationship, and they were no. always like, yeah, they were always in dick battles. Which I don't. At that point, like I don't blame Mustafa Akkad because he could probably tell like. I understand him not trusting Dimension at that point. I wish he had trusted Spiegel, but I get it, you know? Um, yeah, it's Weinstein country, for fuck's sake. Yeah, that fucking guy. But um, <laughs> both of them, really, from what I've read and heard. Uh, I know, and isn't it sad that everything we ever have to write or talk about, they come up? Like, every development health story, you have to talk about them to some degree, and it's it's rough. It's funny. I just did an interview with somebody, and we talked about that. I was like, you know what? I, I it, The Weinsteins come up so much because they developed so many fucking movies that they never made. They threw so much cash around developing these movies that never were. And it's like – it's great for me as a writer, you know, but it sucks for me as a film fan, like reading all these movies that could have been that never were because these guys couldn't settle on a fucking take. I know. Some days, I, I, I don't know if you worry about this, but some days I'm like, am I going to run out of development hell stories? But I, then other days I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, not. No, I hear you. Well, the problem is, is like, not only 
you know, the first hurdle you have to make is finding out that they were meant to exist in the first place. And then the second hurdle is tracking down the people who had anything to do with it. And then the third hurdle has nothing to do with you, which is, you know, the people agreeing to talk about it in the first place. And I've, I, I had to sort of grow a thick skin. You know, I had to get beyond that at a certain point as a guy who really wanted to tell like every possible story that I could run across, because there are some people who just don't want to talk about it. Like it's whether it's painful or whether they feel it would hurt their career or if they're just too damn busy, you know, so I've, mm-hmm. I've gotten better over the course of the past year or so just being like, okay, all right, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time, you know, and just moving on. Mm-hmm, um, I get that. I will say the other heartbreak with writing like articles on movies that never were is finally landing an interview and then finding out there's nothing of any substance to it. Like that's yeah. like getting, getting all of the stars to align. And then you get to that point. And it's like, okay, let's dive in. What is there to say? Yeah. Like three minutes later, you're just like, is that it? Is that, I find that on this topic, talking to people like you or, or fans of the works in general make for much more interesting episodes than actually talking to the creatives themselves, which sometimes is amazing. No doubt. But talking to the people that care and like fantasize and romanticize this stuff, I always get good conversations out of them. Yeah. And that's what I love about this podcast is that you do invite on people to sort of talk about, because that's the thing. I mean, it, it, my article series is all about, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, and this sounds like a weird lofty goal, but I swear it's uh, why I'm doing it. It's like, I see it like horror archaeology. You know, I'm trying to find and uncover as much as I can. And I preserve as much as I can. And sometimes that's going to be every possible scrap of information, every beat of the story that would have been told. It's going to be like this 8,000 word, you know, story, like a massive article. And then sometimes it's not going to be, you know, there's no grand story behind why it came about, Mm -hmm. why it didn't happen. And for example, one just went up this past week about, uh, honestly, a a movie that I thought was going to be like this. It it was a huge find for me. I found mention of it in an old star log and it was, uh, it was a movie called Phantom, which was going to be the Phantom of the opera updated to world war two era, Nazi occupied France Directed, written by the writer of Fatal Attraction, directed by Wolfgang fucking Peterson. What? And I tracked down the writer and I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be amazing. And then I spoke with him and he was like, you know, oh yeah, I was brought in because there was another writer and he had a take and Wolfgang wanted me. So I came in and wrote it and, uh, you know, they wanted Dustin Hoffman and Dustin Hoffman didn't really want to do it. So the project fell apart. That's pretty much it. And the story would have been basically the Phantom of the Opera that y'all know and love, except it would have had Nazis in it. And that's pretty much it. And I'm like, yeah, been there. Is that it? Is that really? (laughs) You forget that you're talking to, this is just people working. This is just their day job in a way for some people. And, and for us, it's so much more sacred. So yeah, I I understand that. You know, I, every time I interview somebody, I'm just like, tell me a story, you know, make me dream. Uh, And as I said earlier, like, I really believe it. What you're doing is like really journalism. And it's like, it's totally, I see it as totally different from this, which is like, you know, talk show energy. And that's what I enjoy doing. But Phantom Limbs is like really journalism. It's, it's really well done. And if you guys have not had a chance to check it out, absolutely go over to bloody disgusting 
and, and read everything because if you like this podcast, like you're going to eat that column up. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I, uh, you know, I'm keen on anything that regards the sort of, uh, you know, this corner of the genre, you know, like unmade sequels, remakes, movies and whatnot. I mean, there, and plus I will say there seems to be in recent years, you know, ever since, um, I want to say like Jodorowsky's Dune came out where mm-hmm. people realize, Hey, there are all these stories that were never told. Let's find out more about them. And now we have, uh, you know, we have the best movies never made. We have your podcast. We have my column. Uh, there was uh, Joshua Hull's book that came out earlier this year. There was Dave Alexander's book, Untold Horror, which came out through Dark Horse that long ago. You know, I, I love that. And plus to me, like, there was Taking Shape 2 that came out last year that was specifically about unmade how oh, I read movies. a chapter out of that today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I to me, and, I, you know, I've, I've seen this a little bit sometimes. Like, there's a, a little bit of... There's a kind of like territorialism, or, yeah, a little bit, a little. But to me, like, and, and, and by the way, I, I will say this: I've never gotten that from you whatsoever. Um, <laughs> but to me, I'm just like the more the merrier. Like, let let there, you know, let's all write an article on Halloween Six. You know what I mean? Let let's let's. I, I'm all... surprised not everyone wants to. Like to me, it's just like, well, why wouldn't you? This is the most interesting thing in the whole world. Exactly. Yeah. And so, to me, I and plus, you know, for example, like Taking Shape Two. Uh, you know, there was so much great stuff in that book, and then. You know, I covered for my own reasons. Obviously, I told you about my connection with Halloween 6. So, of course, if I was going to do like an October-themed Halloween run, you know, uh, of course, Halloween 6 was going to be one of them. I'd interviewed Todd Farmer before. So, of course, Halloween 3D was going to come up, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so all of those were kind of based on that. And Jake Wade Wall came up because I'd approached him about, uh, you know, when a stranger returns. Uh, And he was, I found He also did Halloween, right? Yeah, he did. Uh, so his Halloween was Halloween, the missing years. And that literally yes. came across. I had no idea that he had written it. I had reached out to him about When a Stranger Returns, which was the uh, sequel to the When a Stranger Calls remake. And so mm-hmm. literally, I kid you not, somebody had emailed me like, hey, you should really do an article on Halloween, the missing years written by Jake Wade Wall, the guy who blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what the fuck? I'm interviewing yeah. him like three days from now. And so I cool. literally, when I hopped online with him, I'm like, sir, I know that we're talking about when a stranger returns today, but can you set aside a little bit of time to talk about your Halloween too, please? And so uh-huh. that's how all my articles came about. And it's funny, like, for example, reading my Halloween, the missing years from him, he told me a lot about its development, but none of its story. But if you pick up taking shape Two they have loads of stuff about his screenplay and like what the story would have been Mm -hmm. in there. And it's like, that doesn't make me sad. That makes me happy that it does exist, you know? And it's the same thing with like, you know, obviously they talk about Halloween 666 and they do a full breakdown of Phil Rosenberg's draft and they have an interview with Rosenberg, which is awesome. Uh, I didn't Mm -hmm. even know how to find the man, you know? Uh, but He's the flip in the Celtic dimension. Yeah, exactly. I needed to use my VR apparatus to contact yeah. him. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, but you know, but the flip side of that is is that 
I got to interview Scott Spiegel and Spiegel had found his notes, like his handwritten notes, which uh, we can dive into here in a second if you want, like some of the stuff that he would have done. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely would. And so as a result, like I have some stuff that they don't and they have some stuff that I don't. And what I love about that is like that doesn't make me feel competitive. That doesn't piss me off that somebody like scooped me or something like that. I'm like. No, the the info is out there. That's amazing. Now and thank God, because I am not here to provide good information. I'm here to provide infotainment. And so the more the more research out there that I can get, the better. So yeah, thank you to both of you. Can I suggest instead of infotainment that you change it to dangertainment? Oh, this is dangertainment. <laughs> if who has a dangertainment T-shirt? Because I have to find out how to get one. Uh, my, uh, I will ask him for you. My uh, Hammer Pub co-host Paul Farrell <laughs> uh, knows that I despise Halloween Resurrection, and so in a group message tonight with myself and Ali Chapel, our uh, Hammer Pub co-host, he posted a pic of himself wearing a dangertainment shirt, telling me it was Fuck just yeah. for me, and I was like. You're you're blessed. You're you're booked and you're blessed because what a friend. What a friend. Also want to say Allie Chapel, Canadian Queen. We know her and we love her. I love Allie. She's awesome. Uh she is one hell of a filmmaker. Uh I don't know if you've gotten a chance to see her short film yet. Um, I haven't. I've only seen her acting. I've never seen her her um filmmaking. So okay, so she made a short film that is and it's always weird you know, talking up like your friend's work. It's like, because inevitably oh, no. you, the, the people you're talking to, you're like, are they going to believe me that my opinion is genuine? Or do they think I'm saying this just because, you know, no, we're friends it's like whatever. mom or like you're, you're seeing us in rose colored glasses and that's beautiful too. Exactly. Uh, but if anybody knows me pretty well, they know that I'm not that dude. Like I'll be honest, uh, not, not oh. mean spirited, but I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be straightforward. I'll be honest. Okay, and I will say to know. her short film, is genuinely fantastic. Like it's very well made, very well directed, very well acted. Is um, it in the in the is it in the ecosystem or is it in the festivals? Like what's the deal with it? It just played, I want to say it played uh the Salem Fest that just Oh, that's where my short film premiered. Salem yes. Horror Fest, shout out. So it played there. I don't know when it's going to become available to view or when, but she is yeah, working. Well. On her first feature, which I believe is called Malediction, and she is—I believe she wrote it, she's directing it, and she is starring in it too. So she's Good. wearing all the hats. And uh, honestly, I am genuinely getting to see it. I think she's going to kill it. So. Oh yeah, and 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 she's like a well-known name in in the little horror sphere, and we support everything she does. So Ali, good luck to you. We're gonna we're hopefully gonna be able to see that short sometime soon. Absolutely. All right. Well, should we should we do it? Should we, I'm ready. Should we talk about Spiegel? Uh, my bot's ready. I don't know about you, I, but I feel it. All right. Well, I should say at this point in the background, it's it's kind of like perfectly setting the mood. I have uh, Michael Myers power walking down a uh, <laughs> down a corridor, and he is. You gotta uh, keep fit. You gotta keep fit, and you gotta do it the way that you gotta do it. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned keeping fit because it is so obviously a different Michael than the one that's in the rest of the film, who's a little, okay. who's a little bulkier. You know, he's. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Mike's had a couple of cheeseburgers like earlier. Yeah, in the film, yeah. But... He's in a basement. It's you know, there's not a lot of place to do your calisthenics, so I understand. <laughs> but no, he's he's looking trim and fit, and he is a power walking son of a bitch at this point in the movie. But um, yeah. So Spiegel. Okay, at this point, he said he thought as though Mustafa Akkad didn't feel as though he was the right director from the project. So that was. 
that was kind of it for him, unfortunately. And then from that point, we eventually make our way to the Daniel Farron's Joe Chappell version, or Joe Chappelle, rather, version. Scott Spiegel was kind enough to dig up a bunch of notes that he had made around that time while he was working on his own take. And, you know, he was working from Rosenberg's draft. He was taking ideas from it. He was melding them with his own. And, um, you know, we had a conversation where he sort of, you know, he dove into them and he said it was basically like a beat sheet in the making. It was just kind of like miscellaneous notes and ideas, A to B to C, assorted notes along the line. Um, he said it didn't really have anything to do with the earlier draft per se, other than having Michael and Loomis. Uh, there's no virtual reality. There's no, uh, no portal, no Lovecraftian craziness going on. Um, he just, he wanted to streamline it and ground it. And, uh, apparently his opened with, so you remember at the end of Halloween five, we have Michael Myers being broken out of jail by uh, the man in black, right? I don't know if you remember in the producer's cut of Halloween six, there is a quick flashback where Jamie is kidnapped as well. But before she is, she sees like the man in black and a weird group basically loading Michael into the back of a van, right? So apparently Spiegel hit upon that idea and he had this opening sequence where Michael was broken out. He was loaded into a van by several guards. He's being transported and he basically, he crashes the car. He gets the hell out. You know, he, uh, he breaks free from these chains that he's in. He grabs a guy by the neck and I'm reading directly from his notes here. Lifts him up, shoves his head through the top of a vehicle, crunch. Mm, mm. The guard angles helplessly. Myers grabs the other guard, slams him into another guard, pushes them through the back door. The other guard, with his head through the roof, sees a sign, and then he alluded to the fact that the sign likely... Well, he says, well, the guard loses his head in the most gruesome of ways, and then the vehicle crashes and explodes. So from that point, after Michael crashes the car and gets the hell out, he is apprehended and he's thrown into prison. And there's actually a prison montage. Like Michael Myers is, again, I'm quoting. Oh my God, really? I love it. I <laughs> Mike, love it. Mike in prison. Quote, there's a prison montage. Quote, Michael Myers is stripped of his personal belongings, including his mask. From this point on, we see everything from Myers' point of view only. Michael is then fingerprinted, hosed down, and thrown into a cell. Then there's a courtroom scene. The trial of Michael Myers. Loomis argues his case... <laughs> Myers is beyond psychiatric help. The beast must die. LOL. <laughs> Which I love. Now, something that he did pull, obviously, from the Rosenberg draft, we are then introduced to Dana, noted here as the last living blood relative of Michael Myers. Um, we open with her having a nightmare and, quote, she's dreaming of dead Myers relatives in the cemetery. It's her turn to join them, her destiny. She falls into an open grave. Michael appears above her, shovel in hand, and begins burying her alive. That, to me, sounds a hell of a lot like a sequence in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Yeah. Um, so, like, creepily so. but uh, Yes, it does. But I dig that. So I'm It's not, also I'm not a gonna... lot like Halloween 3D, including the name Dana and the burial stuff, which is interesting. Yeah, like, it's funny in reading all these disparate versions of Halloween, not just this one, not just Halloween 6, but going throughout the entire franchise, like, how many times ideas sort of recur, whether or not there's any connection between creators well, or not. I mean, they own it, right? Like like the Akkads and, and Miramax, like they own all of these Bibles and all of these outlines and all of these scripts. So like, it makes sense that Tommy 
from 666 is similar to Tommy from The Curse of Michael Myers. Like, I get it. Totally, yeah. And um, so apparently, like, all of this is just a uh, prelude uh, because he notes that at this point it's like credits. Carving Jack Lantern, Blood Oozes from Orifices, One Year Later, Halloween Eve, We Are Introduced to the New Haddonfield. The Michael Myers case has proven very lucrative, and I love this idea. The town is like a macabre graceland, and Halloween is Elvis's birthday. I love that. I love that that's, so much. That's the vibe. I, I like that too. Media people have set up camp. It's the 30th anniversary of the initial murders, and we set up a guy named Miles Anthony from Inside Source. Then it's interior prison. Michael being strapped to the chair. They're going to fry his ass, and then the power goes out in prison. Obviously, there's a prison break. And <laughs> Spiegel started to describe the sequence, and then he was like, I'm not going to tell you what happens next. I might use it in another movie. But there's a lot of action in this darkened prison at night. He kills everybody, escapes, and he's going back to Haddonfield to join in the 30th anniversary of the murders. Hell yeah. Now at this point, so Michael's headed back. Haddonfield's going to have this big blowout. 30th anniversary Halloween party. He brought Loomis back into the proceedings, which I think is kind of cool. He's not just like a one-scener anymore. He's an active player. He's hanging around. He's tracking Myers down. He's kind of doing his Sam Loomis thing. And uh, again, he's reading directly from his notes. Michael's on his way to Haddonfield, picked up by the people on their way to a big party in a pickup truck. One of the kids tries to jokingly pull off Myers' mask, and Myers wipes them all out. Now, that was one version of the traveling scene. There was a variation that he described that I actually thought was much cooler that finds Michael basically boarding a train to get back to Haddonfield. And again, quote, he is a ghostly passenger seated by himself. At the first stop, a slew of Michael Myers get on board, drinking and carousing. All partiers headed to the anniversary party in Haddonfield. A female Michael Myers, Michelle Myers, sits on his lap. Finally, they all begin removing their masks, all except dot, dot, dot. Next stop, Michael exits the train. This other passenger steps aboard and immediately screams. Michael has wiped out the slew of imposters. So that at that mm-hmm. point, there was you know a pretty solid idea of what his movie was going to be. And then he had to admit at this point that his notes began getting like skimpier and skimpier they were growing increasingly sparse um but he was a busy girl yeah he noted uh myers stalks unsuspecting dana big set piece including loomis and a sheriff where everyone and i love this realizes the tricks are up and people are dying myers is on the (laughs) rampage everyone in town panics and um so at this point one of the heroes kills or all the heroes kills someone in a shape mask thinking it was michael And he noted, so this is how Act 3 starts off. Haddonfield is deserted. It's midnight. Loomis has an autopsy done to make sure they really got Myers, but Myers is alive. We get into some cemetery shenanigans. There's a cemetery climax, some missing coffins, some missing headstones. Loomis, sheriff, boyfriend, showdown at the cemetery. Loomis uses weapons in his wheelchair to thwart the shape. And I love that. I love that Loomis has a tricked out weaponized he would he really would uh loomis's last stand the shape escapes his bloody mask on the spike of the cemetery fence is all that remains dana and loomis are the last people standing epilogue the surviving sheriff talks with dana after the climax he tells her he has some troubling news as it turns out the autopsy that was done when they weren't certain that they had killed the real shape ultimately revealed that the body was that of michael myers dana looks ill Huh. Then who was wearing that mask and doing the rest of the killing? 
At that same moment, in the window in the background, we see a figure wearing a Michael Myers mask. He stares silently at Dana, cut to black. And when I said, like, there are recurring ideas when it comes to, uh, you know, the various unmade Halloweens, this idea of a second shape pops up over and over and over again in various versions. Um, I think the Scott... It's scary, yeah. Well, totally, because it's like, well, what the hell is it? You know, it's... uh, yeah. There was, uh, oh, I think there was like the Two Faces of Evil, which you can read about in Taking Shape 2 that talks oh, about two shapes. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the Scott Malam version, the guy who wrote um, Mother's Day, uh, which is a damn uh-huh. movie, he did a Platinum Dunes pitch uh, about two traumatized boys who grow up. And there is a shape, and the shape is basically attacking people, but the shape is attacking people in two separate places. And it turns out there are two shapes doing the killing at the same time. And one is malignant. Yeah. Well, (laughs) uh, one is Michael Myers and one is Michael Myers, like childhood friend. And I I don't know if I have this right or not, but I want to think that Michael Myers actually dies at the end of it. And so the remaining shape is like this other kid, which I wait, Michael dies at the end of one of these movies. He'll be back, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but that's pretty much it. That was, that was the Spiegel, take and uh you know again it basically existed as notes but um i don't know i think it would have been a lot of fun i love the halloween six that we have but at the same time you know i'm I'm greedy i i kind of wish we had gotten the spiegel halloween six as well i am too i want to if you know if we had a alternate reality machine this is all i would do is just go see all the different alternate halloween movies yes this would be my number one priority a hundred percent uh i you know I would love to do a line of comic books based off of like, I, I would love to, in my wildest dreams, there would be a Phantom Limbs line of comic books that in some way bring Jinx. these stories to life. That's a really good idea, Jinx. And it's not impossible to make it happen down the line. I, I, I love it. I mean, this happened, comic books and graphic novels have salvaged so many of our development hell. Um, misfits like Freddy versus Jason two stuff like that. Like it's a really beautiful way to be able to get these stories back uh, uh, behind the mask. Before really the mask. Well. Yeah, totally. Like was before that mask, great? Yeah. Have you read that? I haven't, but I have to, the first one sold out if I'm not mistaken. Oh, re- um, I know they've done multiple printings, so it might be possible to, uh, okay. I'm sure it's not that hard to find. I'd, I'd love to, cause I'm a huge fan. It is honestly, it is so damn good. I would recommend you almost not read it simply because you, you'll be sad that it's not a movie, but at the same time, you'll be so happy that you get to experience any version of that story. So go ahead and do read it because it is, it's so, I gotta, it's so gotta. damn good. It's so damn good. I love those characters. I love those movies. Uh, we did an episode on it not long ago. Um, I remember I'm, I listened. I'm, just, I'm just such a big fan. Um, that Scott Spiegel stuff was truly hella fascinating. We're so lucky that we had you here with your knowledge. We all like I, my favorite episodes are the Jinx episodes. This is not a lie. I, I um, I'm happy to come back anytime. Oh, I, I joke about this all the time. Not even joke. I'm like, how do I get him to co-host? How do I get us? There? <laughs> so just know there's a long con in, with you involved, and just be be wary, be wary, be wary. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I'm, I'm cool Jinx. With that. Where where can we find you in the universe? How how do we find you? How do we support you? Okay, before I say that, I gotta ask: Are we not going to do the uh, 
the traditional is this movie going to happen wrap up or are we just assuming you know, that I it's want definitely to. not I, I, I haven't known how to do that with these Halloween movies, but let's <laughs> fucking do it. Let's do it because why not? Because what we say goes. So yeah, Jinx. Well, what are we going to do? Are we saying Spiegel's six? My dog's freaking out. Are we saying, are, which one are we going with? Yeah, let's do the Spiegel. I think Spiegel. Okay. Jinx. Is there a shot in hell? None whatsoever. <laughs> not even a little, not even in development hell? No. No, I, you know what? There's no I, way. There's no I, way. I, I will say this. Um, if I get my dream to come true and there is a Phantom Limbs line of comic books, I will beg and plead with Malika Khan to allow us to do Scott Spiegel's Halloween 6 because I think the world needs it. Fuck, yes. And can we also get Retribution? Oh, fuck. Yeah. As many as it will allow. Yeah. Let's do all of them. They don't all, actually, they don't all need to be done. But let's do most of them. I would totally... I, I would unabashedly love to see Halloween 3D realized in some I was way. just going to say, can we do a pop-up book? Oh, pop, or, uh, no, do the... Uh, what do you think about doing like a traditional uh, anaglyph, like red blue lens 3D comic yes, book? Yes, Halloween yes, yes. It's the only way. It's the only. It's the only solution. Is that? Yes. I'm excited. I love that. This is gonna happen. <laughs> I am too. Um, I support this journey. Okay, so it's it's a no. Yeah, it's a no for me too. This this franchise has been rebooted and rebooted way too many times. It, you know, but who knows what's gonna happen in the future with Halloween? I I think Halloween is gonna exist in some shape or form. Forever. I see what you did there, and I appreciate it. And I yeah, really only have one word to say to you after concerning that, John. 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 We love you, John. And your music's so good. You're like David Lynch. Doesn't matter what you do with film, your music is always going to be excellent. He's incredible. He really is. I wish. It, it, I kind of hope that he has a second life as a guy who just scores films, you know? Yeah, me too. Sacred Bones Records, how lucky are they? Oh, no doubt. And But I will say at the same time, like, The Ward as your last film, like, that's your mic drop. John! It can't be. It can't be. It, it, he's got to, he's, Cody and him got to team up, make something to be the final, to, the final girl, because that, that doesn't, that doesn't hold up. We need one more. We need one more film from him where, you know, even if his last movie had been like Cigarette Burns for Masters of Horror. That would have been, that wouldn't have been that bad, I yeah, think. No, it would have been okay. It would have been, you know, that would be a better mic drop than Ghost of Mars. But then he went and did Pro-Life and uh, The Ward and fucked things up again. So. I never saw Pro-Life, but I, I trust you. I trust you and I, I don't trust John. You don't need to. <laughs> Oh, Johnny boy. Um, we're grateful and we love you. And the the score for Halloween Kills is sounding incredible. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, Jinx, I have to say it again. How do we support you? How do we find you? How do we give you our money? Um, well, uh, you can find my writing at Bloody Disgusting. I write Phantom Limbs, which again is about, uh, you know, unproduced horror sequels and remakes. I write a column called Larval Inc. That's all about, uh, wildly different initial versions of movies. Uh, I've done a few of those. Uh, like for example, I looked at Chimera, which was a thriller that eventually became the movie Ghost Ship, you know, and changed wildly. Uh, one of them was, uh, 
that I'm kind of proud of. I, I got to talk with Darren Lynn Bowsman about his screenplay, The Departed, which was eventually adapted into Saw 2. And the differences plot-wise between those yep. are massive and so on and so forth. I know uh, that, I that's, a, a bizarre, that's a bizarre uh, legacy there, for sure. I know. I wish he would get to make The Departed. And he, from the sounds of it, he wants to. And I hope that happens. Um, it's a filmmaker dream, though, to like uh, some some contract thing that your your agent managed to squeeze get, let you direct saw too very cool absolutely and just let the man direct leprechaun already it's ridiculous he shouldn't have to be i that. i know <laughs> i know crazy uh i do mask of insanity which is all about talking to actors and actresses who have been behind masks or latex and horror films basically talking about how they got the roles their overall thoughts mm-hmm. on them and then basically talking about like the craziest or funniest stories they can relate uh, about the times they were on set. It's 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 fun. It's fluffy, but uh, I have a lot of fun. Did you ever get Tim Curry? It. Not yet. For Not yet. Uh, you know what I'm talking about for Legend. Oh yeah, or it. You know, I'd, I'd be happy with either. <laughs> or hell, Frankenfurter. Give me Rocky. Really, Horror. anything he's ever done. <laughs> Truly, he's the damn best. Um, and then uh, I have one called Blood Ink Staples, which is all about uh, horror comics that people need to be reading. And then uh, good title. You can find me at ScreamAnnex.com. Uh, you can find the, uh, the, the, the the podcast, which again is currently doing a side project called Hammer Pub, which is all about Hammer Horror Films and has myself, Ali Chapel, and Paul Farrell drinking and providing Hammer commentaries. And from the sounds of it, Josh, you're going to be a guest in the future. You're going to do the woman I in black. I better be. I keep hinting. How long can I hint? God, okay, you, no, you, you are welcome as soon as you would like, but I will definitely at least set aside the woman in black for you. Yeah, give me woman in black. That's the one I want. Rock on. All right. Otherwise, you can find me on social media. I'm uh, on Twitter. That's at Jinx1981, J-I-N-X-1981. You can also find me at Scream Addicts. And uh, hell, I'm on Instagram. You can find me. Uh, that's at Jinx seven four zero nine four one. I am sorry for all the damn numbers. He does uh, not want to be found, people. He is Laurie Strode, t- twenty eighteen. Seven four zero nine four one is my version of calling myself Carrie Tate. Did you say Carrie Tate? Yeah, I love that. Yes. I love a Carrie Tate reference. Jeez, Louise, where's the Carrie Tate multiverse? Thank you, Jinx. Excellent. Rock on. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back with another episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.